is your last meal. I'm your host, Rachel Bell. Every episode, I interview a celebrity about what they would eat for their last meal. And then we explore the history of that food, the culture, and whatever else we can cram into 30 minutes. Today on the program, Prodigy, half of the rap group Mob Deep, one of the most critically acclaimed and successful hardcore East Coast hip hop groups. Remember that whole East Coast, West Coast 90s rap battle? They were a part of that. Speak the wrong words, man, and you will get touched. You can put your whole army against my team, and I guarantee you it'll be your very last time. Your simple words just don't move me. Your minor, we major. Your Prodigy, a.k.a. Albert Prodigy Johnson. Went to prison in New York in 2008 for three and a half years. He was charged with illegal possession of a firearm. And while he was there, he cooked. Not as a job in the prison dining hall, but with the other inmates in the common area. We get a few hours out of our cell per day to chill in the day room and cook or watch TV or use the phone or, you know, play chess or checkers or cards or read a book or something. So uh, during those times, you know, me and the guys that I hung out with, we would always cook because we were working out a lot. And when you work, when you're on a real workout regimen, you have to eat. So that's what we would do. That was our thing. Work out, eat good, um, drink a lot of water. And you know, I went in with this plan to better myself and improve myself, like, and it worked out for me. But I learned that a lot of inmates, you know, they don't have family and they don't have money, you know, to afford food on commissary. So, you know, they were forced to eat the prison chow every day. And that's the only thing they had to eat. And um, it's disgusting, man. You hear horror stories about people finding things in food. Inmates have access to a microwave, a toaster oven. They have plastic utensils. Prodigy says you could buy an old school can opener from the commissary. And together they would create recipes from a motley crew of processed foods purchased at the commissary, food mailed by their families, and bits and pieces stolen from the chow hall. Sometimes we would definitely steal like little packets of salt and pepper and butters from the chow. The things that we would have in commissary were like cans of salmon, like the whole salmon stuff stuffed in the can. You would actually have to debone it and clean it and all of that. And um, we would have like tuna fish, canned chicken, barbecue sauce, and like adobo and stuff like that. They had also rice and like pasta. Prison cuisine, or prisine, if you will, inspired Prodigy to write his new book. It's called Commissary Kitchen, my infamous prison cookbook. And we will go deep into that later. M- mob, mob deep? We'll go mop deep into that later. Sorry. But this is a really special episode of Your Last Meal because we're actually going to talk about the last meals of death row inmates. And I know we promised that this show would not be dark and it would not actually be about death. But strangely, throughout my entire journalism career, I have had this obsession with talking to a cook who prepared last meals. And so I finally tracked someone down. His name is Brian D. Price, and his story is fascinating. When he was an inmate in Texas, he cooked hundreds of last meals, and we'll talk to him later on the show. Also, I will travel down into the bowels of the radio station to visit our own little commissary kitchen, which is basically a glorified vending machine, to cook a prisine dish from Prodigy's cookbook. The dish I chose is called Prison Surprise. It is a dish that he ate when he first got to Rikers Island, and it made him so sick, he said he threw up all day and ended up in the infirmary. So I'm pretty excited to cook this meal and eat it. Trying to get the top off the tuna and the tab just broke. What would Prodigy do? WWPD. Tuna. Ouch. Okay, here we go. But let's get back to Prodigy. He told me that cooking his own food was really important for many reasons. First of all, he has sickle cell disease, which I learned on Wikipedia was kind of a burn that some of the West Coast rap groups would include in their songs when they were trying to burn Mob Deep. 
Oh yeah, Mob D. <laughs> you wanna f with us? You little young ass motherfuckers. Don't one of you niggas got sickle cell or something. You f with me, you f around, have a seizure, a heart attack. You better back the f up when you get smacked the f up. And he says if he doesn't eat healthy, if he doesn't get a lot of fruits and vegetables, he will get sick. So his family would send him a crate of canned vegetables every month. And second of all, he says they just don't get enough food at meals in the chow hall. He says you're always hungry. But the biggest reason to cook your own food in prison is because the food in the chow was disgusting. What was the worst thing that you ate in chow that they served you? Oh, man, the worst thing probably had had to be this bread pudding. And I found a, I found a pubic hair sticking in the middle of it. Gross. Yeah, it was disgusting. I was like, whoa, no, 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 no. We ain't eating this no more. <laughs> this is slop, man. You hear horror stories about it, people finding broken glass in the food and just a whole bunch of craziness. So Prodigy and his buddies cobbled together meals, like the fake pad thai that he talks about in his cookbook. That's ramen noodles with canned chicken, canned vegetables, peanut butter, liquid eggs, and a little seasoning from the ramen packet. What is a recipe that you were really surprised that you could make in prison? I mean, I've heard about, you know, using like the little cream packets to make a cheesecake. What is something that you, you made out of nothing? Definitely probably like the, the pot stickers, the dumplings. That oh, is a weird recipe. Can you talk more about that? What do you use to make the dumpling skin? Uh, it was two different ways we would do it. We would take like the pasta. We would get like spaghetti or elbow noodles and you boil it. You know, you get it soft and then you just mush it together. Make a ball, you know, make a ball out of it, mush it together like dough, and then you just make it into a shape, you know what I mean, of a dumpling. You, and you can fill it with like chicken or tuna or whatever, and then close it up and then put it in a toast oven, you know what I mean? And you got dumplings. <laughs> we used to do the same thing with bread. Like if you take a loaf of bread and you, you put some water on it and you just turn it into dough, soft dough, and just make the dumplings out of the, the dough, you know what I mean? Did you just uh, kind of sit around all day thinking, like, what can I make? Were you getting all, like, Food Network chopped in your brain? <laughs> yeah, we were definitely, like, experimenting, trying new things. We made that honey, that honey glazed chicken. That was, like, an experiment one day. Me and the homies was in there just trying different things. So that came out pretty good. We just put mad honey on the fried chicken and threw it in the toaster oven, and it was, like, something new. We was like, wow, this is good. So I was surprised that you could make what you call hooch in prison. You can actually ferment fruit and make it into alcohol? Yeah, definitely. It's, I mean, you if you get caught doing that, it's over. You're going to get a ticket and probably going to get some more time added to your, <laughs> your sentence. You know what I mean? You got to hide the jar so that correction officers don't find it when they do cell searches. They do random cell searches in there. Do you have your book with you so you could actually read the way that you wrote that recipe? Because it's awesome. Uh, Page 103. Peas, prison, sangria, right? So that you got the uh, the ingredients is apples, oranges, mixed fruit cups, bread, ketchup, and sugar. Take a big-ass healable bag, add chopped up oranges, apples, and mixed fruit cups. Add some water to the bag and a slice of bread. Mash it together until it looks disgusting. <laughs> Seal the bag, boil some water in a bowl in the microwave, and sit the bag in the bowl. Wrap that hot-ass bag in a t-shirt and hide it. After a few days, the bag should start blowing up, which means there's gas in there and it's becoming liquid. Open the bag a little and add some ketchup and a ton of sugar. Do the hot water thing again. Keep doing that every day for like a week. Then it should be done. The longer you keep that, the more up you'll get on the hooch. It smells f***ing disgusting, just so you know. 
You talk about in the book that cooking together becomes something that brings everybody together. And it also is a distraction because you kind of have nothing to do all day. Yeah. So, you know, in prison, you know, there's a lot of tension. Like everybody's upset and they're in prison and, you know, they got attitudes. So, you know, cooking and when it comes down to cooking, you know, everybody's in the day room. You know, usually, you know, people share the food. Like, like I might throw in the rice, you throw in the salmon, somebody else is throwing the beans. And then we'll make the food and then we'll all eat together, whoever chipped in, you know what I mean? And sometimes we might share it with somebody if we feel like, you know, being nice or whatever. But the cooking, it takes like an hour or two to prepare a meal, you know what I mean, to sit down and eat. It takes your mind off of where you're at for a little while, you know, because you're sitting there preparing your meal. And it's almost kind of peaceful, you know, for the moment. You know, you forget where you're at for a little while and you get to, you know, talk to the other inmates and... It just helped bring people together and it calms a lot of the tension. So it's a good thing. Prodigy was not on death row. So the idea of an actual last meal wasn't a reality for him. But being locked up for a few years, he says he thought about food all the time. So when I asked him what his last meal would be, he had an immediate answer. Definitely Korean barbecue. What do you like to order? Oh, man, I'll get a little bit of everything. Salmon, beef, uh, shrimp, chicken, probably some uh, vegetable fried rice. So why Korean barbecue? Why would that be your last meal? That's just my favorite, one of my favorite foods. I love the flavor, the seasoning. Do you remember the first time that you had it or who introduced it to you? Yeah, my friend Alchemist introduced it to me. He's like a big food person. He really loves food. So he took me to this restaurant called Wule Oak in the city. Man, I was blown away. I was like, wow, this is amazing. (laughs) And I was just like stuck, hooked on it ever since. You talk about in the book, the fact that being a rapper and somebody who traveled around the world performing, that you lived like a really nice life and you ate at all kinds of great restaurants. And so it was kind of a harsher blow maybe to come from that to eating prison food. What was the thing that you craved the most that you wanted to eat when you got out? That was it. The Korean barbecue. (laughs) Did you go to that spot? I went straight. the, The day I got released, I went straight from the prison straight to the Korean barbecue restaurant. I thought about it the whole entire three years I was away, and I couldn't wait to come home and have it again. (laughs) That was my first meal. Is there anything that you made in prison that you were trying to kind of capture those flavors or that essence that you created a recipe around? Definitely the fried rice. I was trying my best to make some Asian fried rice in a toaster oven, and it, it came out actually pretty good. You know what I mean? Pretty close. I was so excited to hear that his last meal was Korean barbecue because Korean barbecue is delicious and it's a complete experience. It's not just about the food. It's interactive. You have to bring a group of friends with you. The weird thing is, and I can only speak from Seattle Korean barbecue restaurants, they make you order a lot of food. You can't just sit down and order one dish. They force you to order several things. So you have to bring a big crew with you. And it's really fun to eat because you usually grill the meat yourself. So you sit down at a table that has a grill built into it. There's a big vent above each table to inhale the smoke. And then you grill your own meat. They give you these meat scissors, which I love. You get to snip it up, which is my favorite part. And here to tell us about Korean barbecue is Matt Rodbard, author of Koreatown, a cookbook. The meat is grilled in a couple minutes and you're taking and wrapping it in lettuce leaf. That's a really important part of Korean barbecue is, is wrapping things. Sam is a word that translates to wrap. And you're also slathering on a, a sauce called samjang, which is uh, a mix of gojujang and tenjang, uh, walnuts and a little bit of garlic. 
um, and then maybe throwing in some kimchi, and I'm sure you've heard of that. My favorite thing about going to Korean barbecue is the banchan. Banchan are the small plates that arrive before the meal. Uh, you could receive anything from a couple plates with like maybe some kimchi and uh, some dried fish, or if you go to a more elaborate restaurant, they'll give you 14 dishes. And in the States, where Korean food is a little different than in Korea, you could get everything from potato salad to radishes to bubbling egg custards. Sometimes you'll get little whole fried fish. One thing about banchan, too, is you can always ask for more. Like, you should always raise your hand. If you love something, ask politely. May I have another bowl? And you'll usually get that. Matt says that Korean immigrants started really pouring into the United States in the 1970s. And what really fascinates me about their food is how well it's been preserved. This is something that I learned from Matt. He says a lot of other Asian cuisines have been Americanized and changed for American palates. I mean, we've talked about this in a past episode. Chinese food has had this the worst. I mean, in China, there's no such thing as General Tso's chicken. We eat this super Americanized Chinese food because that's what Americans want. They want fried and they want sweet. Uh, even pad thai is not authentically Thai. Uh, most restaurants in America use ketchup. You're supposed to use tamarind is the ingredient of choice. Uh, and it, you probably noticed that most Thai restaurants have the exact same menu. You get the same curries, the same noodle dishes. They've decided that these are the foods that Americans like, and you don't get any of the northern Thai dishes. But according to Matt, Korean food is like, hey, I'm sour and salty and preserved and stinky and spicy and funky. And if you're not into that, sorry, because that's how we're going to cook it and we're not going to serve it any other way. Japanese food, for example, the California roll, very much an American staple. So Korean food, on the other hand, has been very preserved here in the States, and it's a really cool element. I mean, it, it, there's a couple of reasons. You know, one, Koreans are very proud, and there's a lot of uh, Korean restaurants are for Koreans by Koreans, and that's just, it's serving a community, and that's that's the reason it exists. And second off, in Korea, you know, there, there really um, has been this tradition of food, and it's been so important to the culture that when you move to a place like the United States, it's just really, it's what you have to, to give and share is all these dishes. When we come back, an intriguing interview with someone I've wanted to talk to for over a decade, a man who's cooked hundreds of last meals for death row inmates. usually discuss actual last meals on this podcast. This was something I feel like I promised you that it wasn't going to be morbid. It wasn't going to be a death related podcast. But I personally have been fascinated with actual last meals for over a decade. Somehow I stumbled across a website that listed the last meal of every prisoner who'd ever been executed. I don't know why this is so fascinating to me. It's just like a morbid curiosity. And I managed to track down Brian D. Price. He's the author of the book Meals to Die For. He cooked 218 last meals over the span of a decade when he was an inmate at a Texas prison. He now owns a restaurant in Crockett, Texas. And that's where I was able to track him down. Hi, Rachel. How are you, sweetie? I'm good. How are you? Oh, it's pretty cold right now. It's right at freezing. Down Brian here. went to prison in 1989. For the assault on my ex-wife and the kidnapping of my brother-in-law, a domestic dispute that uh, got way out of hand. And uh, I just lost control for a little while. And it cost me 14 years of my life. Uh, I ended up at the Walls Unit Prison in Texas, in Huntsville, Texas. And that's where the executions take place. 
On the outside, Brian was a professional musician and photographer, but in prison, he was assigned to the kitchen. And as you can probably tell by his sweetie honey baby attitude, Brian is very charming. So he quickly moved to the officer's dining room. He was cooking for the prison officers instead of the inmates in the main chow hall. And one day when the inmate who usually prepared the last meals was unavailable, Brian was asked to step in. No one else was there to do it. And Sergeant Cook brought the last meal request to me and said, uh, you know, they're, they're doing one tonight again. Uh, would you be willing to do it? Because they wouldn't force any cook to prepare the last meal. They'd have to ask for a volunteer. It's kind of like their policy. And I said, okay, Sarge, I'll go ahead and do it. So uh, I decided if I was going to do the last meal that someone's going to have on this earth, no matter what their crime was, I was going to try to do it as if it was uh, someone that I knew and loved, a family member. And I wanted to uh, prepare it to the best of my ability with what uh, we had to, to work with. And contrary to what the uh, newspapers and the media would release, you know, when someone would request a last meal, they'd request sometimes some extravagant meals. Well, uh, most of the time they didn't get what they requested because they had to be something that we could prepare right there out of the kitchen commissary. Like if they wanted a, uh, a lobster or whatever, they had got a piece of frozen pollock, which I tried to gussy up a little bit so they wouldn't look like they got the same piece of fish they'd get every Friday. I'd cut it diagonally and wash the breading off and put my own batter on it. It made it look like something like from Long John Silver's. So they thought they were getting something from the free world at least. But they didn't get lobster. They got a piece of fish. Wanted a steak, you got a hamburger steak. So uh, I learned the, the arts of trying to substitute something that would be um, palatable and something that would be enjoyable for the last meal for someone on the surf. But I, I decided I was going to try to um, prepare the last meal to the best of my ability. Well, after I prepared that uh, last meal for that particular inmate, or the condemned, his name was Lawrence Buxton, a black man who had naturally committed to murder. Well, that night, before I sent the meal over that way, I'm, I'm Christian, so I, I prayed over the meal, and I asked the Lord to uh, you know, accept this man if he finds forgiveness, if he hadn't already. And uh, I went back to my cell that night, and I kind of reflected on it a little bit. Well, the next day, <clears throat> excuse me, Sergeant Cook called me into his office and said, Hey, Price, that, uh, that guy that killed last night, uh, he sent a word of thanks over to you. He said he really enjoyed that meal. Well, Rachel, when I uh, when I heard that, it really had an effect on me. I uh, I, I thought, well, you know, that was probably the last thanks that man gave anyone in this world. Something that you know that I, you know, maybe brought a little bit of a, a smile on his face before he left, and I, I pray that he found the Lord before he left. But the next day, so I went to Sergeant Cook and I said, Hey, Sarge, uh, I said, you know, uh, Perrick doesn't want to do the last meals anymore. If uh, if you want me to, he said, I'll be the one to do it. And he said, Well, you're my man, Price. So for the next 10 years, I prepared all the last meals from 1991 to 2001 in the state of Texas. I worked on 218 executions. I can't believe there were that many executions in that time. Oh, yes. In uh, 1997, when I started writing my book, there was 37 executions that year. The next year, there was, uh, I believe, 35. And the following year, there was 40. Sometimes there was two in one night. They'd uh, execute one about 6 o'clock and another one about 8 o'clock. So I had to prepare two last meals in one night on more than one occasion. And uh, one time in the summer of, I think it was June of 97, uh, they had four executions four straight days in a row, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Yeah, they, they was really uh, putting them through there back in the, in the 90s. Yeesh. Yeah, we don't have executions very often in Washington State. I asked Brian if he made the same meals over and over again. Yes, the most requested last meal, believe it or not, was cheeseburgers and french fries. And uh, I kind of... Uh, Figured that's, that's comfort food. Did you use frozen French fries, or did you start fresh with potatoes? Oh no, they always had uh, fresh potatoes there in uh, 
Texas prisoners. They grew most of their own produce in Texas, very self-sufficient. And uh, I remember one man, he wanted to, uh, he was executed on his birthday by request. And he wanted a, a homemade cheeseburger, a whole plate of French fries, and, and I believe strawberry ice cream and, and a cake for his uh, last meal. And the uh, bakers also make, made homemade uh, buns for it. They're really big. It was a monster burger. When the execution was over, they'd always send back the uh, the tray and such with whatever leftovers or if they ate anything at all. Sometimes they didn't eat it at all. I guess they lost their appetite. But that man ate everything but like one bite of that cheeseburger and a couple French fries. I mean, he pounded it down. You said the first time that you did this, you prayed over the food. Is that something that you continued to do? And did you have a different oh, mindset when you were making these meals than you did when you were, you know, just doing the regular chow hall stuff? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It was a very uh, sobering and somber uh, day, the day of an execution. I mean, the whole mood of the prison, at least in the kitchen, was uh, definitely had changed. Well, like one man, he ordered butter beans for his last meal. And I started uh, really dwelling on that. And I, I thought, well, uh, I bet it was something that his mom used to cook for him and his brothers and sisters, and just the smell and the taste of the butter beans would uh, have him reflect back to those better times when he was a child and such to take him away maybe just for a, a brief moment for what he was about to to face, you know, his, his own mortality. So uh, the butter beans, I felt, was something that he probably had when he was a child. His mom probably used to cook, so he requested that for his last meal. What are some of the more unusual things that people requested? Well, uh, one uh, condemned man requested scotch eggs, and that was a dilemma because uh, no one knew what it was. My my Captain Parkins, she didn't know uh, what a scotch egg was, and uh, we were asking around. Well, we had another sergeant there, Sergeant John Agan. Sergeant Agan came in and said, hey, Sergeant, we got a problem, man. This, this guy wants scotch eggs, and nobody knows what it is. And he just started laughing. He said, you ain't going to believe this, Price. He said, I was watching Good Morning America last week, and uh, they were showing how to make scotch eggs. I said, you got to be kidding me, Sergeant. He said, no, really. He said, it's a boiled egg wrapped in sausage, dipped in pancake batter, and deep fried, and served with pancake syrup. That's what I'll be. So we were able to pull that one out of the hat. Then you have your strange people. One man wanted uh, dirt from the grave that he was going to be buried in uh, for his last meal, some type of voodoo ritual. Uh, we gave him yogurt instead. Could people order literally as much as they wanted? They could order as much as they wanted any time. I would get the last meal request, which I have copies of the uh, the handwritten last meal request in my book, Meals to Die For. They would request whatever they wish, but they wouldn't get it. I mean, like one man wanted 24 tacos and I think six enchiladas, a whole bunch of stuff. Well, Captain Parkin said, no, he can't eat all that. Let's just cook him, uh, you know, like six tacos, a couple of enchiladas. It gave him just a reasonable amount that he could probably finish in that time that he had before he was going to go meet his maker. Do you think that part of requesting all of that is kind of one last try to, like, stick it to the man kind of thing? Like, give oh, me yeah. what I want. Absolutely. That's what Captain Parkin said about that one uh, Hispanic guy that wanted all that, uh, the enchiladas and the big jar of jalapeno, everything. It was just trying to yeah, stick it to him. In 2011, a Texas inmate named Lawrence Russell Brewer, who was a white supremacist gang member, was executed for chaining a man to the back of a pickup truck and dragging him to his death. For Brewer's last meal, he requested two chicken fried steaks, a triple patty bacon cheeseburger, fried okra, a pound of barbecue, three fajitas, a meat lover's pizza, a pint of ice cream, and a slab of peanut butter fudge with crushed peanuts. Brewer did not eat a single bite. And prison officials used this, this meal, this one man, as an excuse to take away an inmate's right to choose their last meal. In 2011, Texas halted the tradition forever, saying an inmate does not get to choose their last meal. 
They can eat whatever's on the menu that day at the chow hall. Senator John Whitmire, chairman of the Senate Criminal Justice Committee, said, quote, it is extremely inappropriate to give a person sentenced to death such a privilege. And this outraged Price, who was already out of prison, he was married at this time, he was running his restaurants, but he felt very strongly that an inmate already did their time. He thinks they're already paying the ultimate price. They're losing their life for the crime they committed. So the last meal is just one last choice they get to make. A little bit of comfort before they go to meet their maker. And Brian felt so strongly about this, he contacted the state, he contacted the prison, and he offered to come back and prepare the meals himself. I offered to prepare the last meals again, myself at my own expense, because Texas had stopped the last meals. His offer was denied. But he's still working on it. He wants to get the Texas legislature to reinstate the last meals. Before you went to prison, were you against the death penalty? Uh, no, I believe I was for the death penalty. Even when I started the, the last meals, it wasn't until I was there firsthand and started witnessing all that that I, that I had to really reflect on it. People need to hear a, a story firsthand to change their mind. I mean, I, a few years ago, started doing stories in prisons locally, and I went to the women's prison a few times and a men's prison. And it's kind of been my thing on the air to try to humanize these people because I think so many people have this attitude of just lock them up, throw away the key. They don't deserve good food. Who cares? Just leave them in there. And it's like, well, what is it? 97% of people get out. Like, don't you want them to be good human beings? So you have to treat them well and try to help them. I mean, it just drives me crazy how it's just this this attitude. And then, you know, people get out and they can't get a job or an apartment because of their criminal past. Of course, they're going to go back and do what they were doing before and commit crimes. That's uh, that's wonderful to hear you say that, Rachel. You're you're an exception to the rule of most folks and most of the... uh, journalists or interviews that I've, uh, uh, that I've done throughout the years, the majority of them, you know, it's, they have that outlook mentality or whatever, just lock them up, throw away the key, they don't deserve another chance or so on and so forth. And most aren't looking for a handout when they get out, they're looking for a hand up. Prodigy has also become somewhat of an advocate for prison reform. He does some speaking engagements around the country, and he's trying to use his fame for good. He's hoping that this cookbook that he wrote will shed some light on the problems in prison and give a voice to people who don't have one because nobody ever wants to listen to a felon. Like I said, people brand them as a bad person. You don't have a voice. And so it takes people like Prodigy to try to make some change. It it needs to be a big reform with the prison system in America. Food is just one thing that needs to be changed. You know, this book helps to shed some light on that on that one particular subject. My experience in jail is there's all kinds of people from all walks of life in prison. People might have the misconception of, uh, you know, prison is crazy criminals or something, but there's a lot of Martha Stewart's in jail. You know what I'm saying? There's a lot of white collar crime, a lot of people that are actually innocent. You know what I mean? They got set up. A lot of people that were defending their families, you know, defending their kids and had to commit a crime. You know, maybe they were defending their daughter or their, or their son. and All kind of reasons and many ways to be in jail. You know what I mean? And you come from all walks of life. You can be locked up just by making a mistake. You got good people in prison. You know what I'm saying? It's not just all bad, evil people. You got good people in there too, man. You know what I'm saying? Like, that deserve good treatment. Like, you know, they deserve better condition in, in jail. They deserve a cleaner, healthier time to serve. You know what I mean? They're serving their time already. There's already, they're already away from their families and their life and their careers or whatever. They're already serving their time. Give them better conditions. Give them better food. Like, you know what I'm saying? There's not much to ask for. Going back to Chef Brian for a couple of minutes, when he went into prison, he believed in the death penalty. And then he completely changed his mind after working so close to these people who were executed. 
And he told me a couple of stories about people who worked within the prison system to kind of shed some light on the fact that not everybody is so hardened and mean to the inmates. Uh, He told me one story about a warden who would be in the room with the person who was executed, and he would put his hand on the leg of every inmate who was executed so that they felt like they had somebody with them when they died, that they weren't completely alone. And this warden retired two years early. He just couldn't take it anymore. He couldn't do that job any longer. Here's another one of Brian's stories about another prison official who was deeply affected by capital punishment. When I first got there, it was horrible, man. There was rats running everywhere and cockroaches and such, and you'd see them in the food. It was terrible. And that was in uh, the late 80s and early 90s. Well, Captain Parkins took over, and, and she brought a air of femininity to about. She, she put curtains up in her office. She had, you know, the health department come out and clean that place up. She had compassion and respect as long as you gave it back to her for the inmates. I'm sure you've probably heard of Carla Faye Tucker. She was the first woman executed like in 100 years in the state of Texas. She had given her life to the Lord while she was behind bars. And you know, she committed a horrible, heinous crime with another guy, uh, killed two people with a pickaxe in a drug-induced frenzy. And anyway, Carla Faye Tucker, there was a lot of media coverage. You know, for a whole week uh, before the execution, satellite trucks from all over the world, you know, were outside the unit. But on that day, uh, Captain Parkins came out and she wanted to help me do the last meal. Carla Faye had requested uh, bananas, peaches, uh, a garden salad, so on and so forth. And uh, so she went and purchased these things herself because we didn't have them there in the prison commissary. And she came out and she brought in some paper plates that had little flowers on them, real feminine looking. Because normally you serve on these blue plates, plastic plates that you have in the officer's dining room. She brought these uh, little flowery paper plates, and she helped me peel and slice the, the peaches and uh, the bananas and the, a cucumber, which we peeled and sliced, and a garden salad with ranch dressing. Arranged it real nice on that plate. And uh, I remember she wore her hair up like in a beehive. I don't know if you remember the old beehive hairstyles from the 60s. Both of her hands, she's a real little gal, about four foot nine, about 60-something years old. I remember she touched with both hands her hair. You know, kind of patted it. She said, well, that's the best we can do, Brian. I said, uh, she said, I'm going to take it on over there to her. And she never did anything like that. She always had one of our sergeants deliver the last meals to the death house. And I said, Fay, I don't think that's a, that's a good idea because I know how, you know, she has a big heart. I thought that would have an effect on her. And she said, no, I want to do it. Well, she did. She took that last meal over to Carla Fay. And about a oh, half hour later, she came back. And when I seen her walk out of the officer's dining room and into her office, her face was ashen, kind of pale. And she went and sat down at her desk, and uh, I walked up and knocked on the door, and she waved me in. I came in, and uh, I said, well, Cap, how, how was she? She said, Brian, that was just the sweetest girl. She said she just uh, she just uh, thanked us for, for, the, for the meal and, and, and hoped that, uh, that it wasn't having a big effect, and she wasn't too much trouble with what she said. And she said, Brian, I just can't believe they're going to kill that. And then she repeated herself. She said, I can't believe they're going to kill that. And she burst into tears and put her hand in front of her face and waved me away right quick. So I left the office. And probably about 15, 20 minutes later, she waved me back in. I shouldn't have went over there. You're right. I shouldn't have went over there. She said, I'm, I'm never going to be the same. So it had a big effect on, on Captain Parkins, too. So the myth that uh, the Texas officials were cold-blooded and heartless, that, that was a myth also. I've seen them firsthand. And I'm, I'm the one and only one that probably was able to witness something like that. We'll be right back. Prodigy. 
Reggie has been out of prison since 2011, but he says he still makes some of the dishes that he learned in prison for his family. He's cooking prison cuisine for his family at home. But he says he does substitute fresh ingredients for the canned and processed ones. He says he will never again eat anything where the main seasoning comes from a pack of ramen. Is the bad food enough to make you behave yourself so you never go back again? Oh, for sure. Definitely. 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 (laughs) I'll never want to see that food ever again, yo. Ever again. And that was Prodigy's last meal. Stick around after the credits. We have one more fun thing. I cooked the most disgusting recipe in Prodigy's cookbook. It is simply called Prison Surprise. It made him throw up more than three times. I made it in the basement of this radio station. And one of the main ingredients is Doritos. So please stick around for that. It is a culinary delight. But for now, I want to thank Prodigy for being on the show. Pick up his cookbook. It's called Commissary Kitchen, my infamous prison cookbook. He promises that it would be a perfect gift for a college student living in the dorms. Thanks to Matt Rodbart, author of Koreatown, a cookbook, and Brian D. Price, author of Meals to Die For. You should probably read all of these books. Thanks to my producer, Aaron Mason, original music by Prom Queen. And if you like what you hear, we would love you forever if you would subscribe to the podcast and even better, write a review. If you used to be a teacher's pet, get back at it. You can be a teacher's pet. Pretend I'm your teacher and write me a nice review. And we're going to take a little break for the holidays. So our next episode will be in the new year. Have a happy holiday. Eat like a pig. Be nice to your mother. I'm Rachel Bell. And until next time, this is your last meal. So I'm in Avanti Market, which is basically a glorified vending machine room in the bowels, in the basement of the radio station here. This is basically our prison commissary. So I wanted to make one of the recipes from Prodigy's book. Uh, And one that he said that was pretty much the grossest is peas, don't try this at home, prison surprise. So that's what I'm going to make. I see all of the ingredients that I need here. So the first thing is ramen noodles. We have a cup of noodle and we only have the shrimp flavor, which I think is the grossest one. And then over here, Doritos. And then Jack Mac, and he says tuna works fine too. So we have these little snack on the run, bumblebee tuna salad. It looks like there's it's like a tuna salad mix with crackers. So this will be our tuna. It'll have a little extra flavor flavor. And then it calls for hot sauce, which I always have at my desk. I always have a bottle of Capitillo. Uh, so we're gonna grab all these items and then head to the microwave and make Prisine magic. So I just filled up the cup of noodle with hot water and we're gonna let it sit. Okay, so the ramen is a little al dente. I'm gonna pour all the broth out because we just need the noodles. I'm just gonna put this tuna fish in the noodles cold. It's a scent I've never smelled before. (laughs) All right, so we're gonna open up the Doritos and crush them up uh, until they're in a fine powder and mix them in with the, the cooked ramen noodles. He doesn't say to add the hot sauce, but I'm assuming I'm supposed to, so I'm going to. And then the last bit of instruction says, good luck, yo. All right, so it's all mixed up. We're going to take it back to the studio and taste. Okay, so we just cooked up peas. Don't try this at home. Prison surprise. So now is the final moment to taste this creation. Um, So basically, it is beige and orange, and there are specks of green from the tuna fish because it had celery in it. It is definitely, though, a beige buffet, so here we go. Ramen noodles, plastic fork, Doritos flying onto my jeans. 
that's actually kind of good. Really? Like, not good in a, I would like to have peas, don't try this at home prison surprise for dinner tonight, but in the undeniably addictive way processed foods with MSG mixed together make you want to eat more of it. It Uh has this salty, addictive kind of flavor to it, and there's a crunch from the chips. I'm going to let you taste this. The interesting thing is that it actually tastes like a dish. It doesn't taste like ramen noodles and then Doritos and then tuna. You don't really taste the individual ingredients. It tastes like it has melded together into one dish. Hmm. What do you think? You're right. So if I was in prison, I would definitely eat this. From the way that Prodigy made the other food sound, this actually, I can imagine, tastes much better than the slop that they eat in the chow. Oh, yeah. There's no glass in this. There are no pubic hairs in this, so already it is better than what you might expect in the chow hall. (laughs) My tongue is a little bit burning with salt. Do you Mm -hmm. feel that feeling? Absolutely. But again, it tastes pretty good. Yeah. As far as that brain trickery. I would imagine that prison food is probably really bland and boring, and this has so much flavor, so much salt, that that probably makes you feel better. Very salty. But so is prison. I'm still eating it. Why am I still eating it? (laughs) You want more? Kinda. Yeah, here we go. Mm. 